Welcome back to another episode of Hot for Justice. I'm Jessica. And I'm Jamie, if you're unfamiliar. <laughs> By now. Yes. Um, I think we've gone into a state of delirium because we could just... It's so hot in here. It's fucking it's hot in here. It's frying my brain. <laughs> and there wasn't much to begin with. There's not. It's all being sucked alive by your unborn child. Yeah. Um, anyway, do you have anything fun and fresh to start with? Because I feel like the last couple episodes we just kind of jumped into it. If yeah. we didn't like catch up on anything. So, um, do you remember me talking about the Bear Brook podcast? I think it's what it was called. It's Bear I Brook. honestly don't remember, but please tell me more. Okay, for, so for my first case, um, I did the refrigerator lady. Yes. And how they thought that maybe the serial killer that was in, um, like, the area at the time had killed her. Mm-hmm. Um, that was part of the Bear Brook case where they found a woman and three children in the barrels. I don't know if you remember me telling you that, but they found them in, like, on the East Coast. Yes, I do remember that. And it kind of reminds me of, um, I think, season four of uh, Dexter. Oh, oh yeah, the barrel girls. Yeah, yeah, no, it's season it's season five. Okay, great. Yep. I'm glad that you knew that. Um, okay. A uh, little fun fact, I've probably watched Dexter fifty times. <laughs> See, I still actually haven't even finished it because I know how season six ends and or I guess the series ends. Oh yeah. Season and eight. I'm <laughs> and I'm already like preemptively pissed. So yeah, it's just don't watch the last episode. Okay, great. <laughs> But watch out all the way up to that. It's yeah, because I think I'm on season six right now, and I've just been kind of, like, dragging my feet. And I just, like, every, like, two months, I'll, like, watch, like, two or three episodes. Oh, my gosh. I don't, I can't, I don't know what to do with you. Like, I binged the first, like, four seasons. Yeah, it's amazing. Because they were excellent. Season five kind of sucked. I actually really liked season five. Really? I didn't like season four because of who dies at the end of it. Yeah, no, no spoilers but, here. Yeah. Anyways, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, they identified... The woman and two of the children, not the third. Oh, shit. Third child. Not the third child. Because I don't think the third child's hers, but the third child is the guy who killed them. Ugh. Um, but they I'd finally identified them. Which That's I think bananas. Is, and I guess it was a citizen detective who did it. She, like, did all this research herself, and she figured it out, which... That's awesome! That's fucking awesome. So that reminds me of that book that we read for the uh, book club that died. Yeah. Well, Sorry, that, Megan, that... if you're listening to this. <laughs> That book died, club died real quick, mainly because um, some of us got the wrong book. <laughs> what was that shit called? Um, the uh, No Stone Left Unturned? Is that what we were? No, it was the other one. It was the one with the detective hat and the spyglass on the front cover. Oh, yeah. But um, there, I guess there's also a Stephen King book by the same name. Yeah. We're great I was this. literally the only person who finished the book. Too, yeah, I started which, it. If you're a reader, it was a good book. If Jamie, are you going to pull up the title? Yeah, it? I'm going to figure it out. Just give me um, like two minutes. Uh, it's a really good book. I liked it. And it kind of... Um, the only the only bad thing about it was that it, it jumps around a lot. Um, but it does like have one cold case from start to finish. That it's I called liked. The Skeleton Crew. Yes. Um so I guess there's also a Stephen King book by the same name. Yes. And that's the one that, like, she and I think a couple other people got. And then we got the one that we were talking about. Because you recommended it, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. Um, and... So I then just... it died. Nobody ever got the right book and no. it never went anywhere else. Yeah, I read, like, I half of it. was and... the only one who finished. Yeah, so... Rude. Neither here nor there at this point. That's why I don't join book clubs, too, because I... I You read too fast. Yeah, I read too fast, and, like, I think what we had decided to be on page 50. Yeah. And I was on, actually, like, really a page 150. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It is a great book, though. Um, It was Definitely recommend. Yeah. I I mean, the half I read was great. I'm going to finish it one of these days, I promise. See, you are, like, 
so I do that when we watch documentaries, and you do that when we read books. Yeah, I, I mean, I make it through half, and then I'm like, I can't, I'm done. Well, okay, it's just it I, because I do public transit, and I wish I'd bought the audiobook to be 100% honest. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to read while I'm like on BART or the bus. It's fair because it gives me like really bad headaches. Okay, um, that's that's fair. Um, I'm gonna find out what, who actually wrote the version of Skeleton Crew that we. It was read. Deborah Hall something. Yeah, I think. Um. If I remember correctly. Yeah, Te- Deborah Halberg. There we go. Uh, yeah, great book. Check it out. Yep. Definitely uh, recommend. Uh, now that we went on a complete 180 sidebar. Um, yes. I start this week. Yeah, it's your great your turn. So this one is another doozy. Um, and mine's short and sweet, so. Excellent. Yes. Um, so this one, to be 100% honest, I did copy and paste a lot of this from a Reddit thread, but I did read all the source materials, Okay. and I don't think I could have written it better than like this person did. Okay. So I will- Give them credit. Well, what's funny is that they deactivated their account, so I don't even know oh, who the no. fuck wrote it. Well, shout out to whoever's Reddit thread yeah. this is. It's great. Good well, job. We would give you credit, but you, you went AWOL. <laughs> Yeah, because I was, like, trying to go to their profile to, like, give them a proper shout-out, and yeah. they, like, it's, like, their thing is, like, hashtag deleted or whatever. Interesting. Or, like, backslash deleted. I don't really know how Reddit works, but... Um, I'm not great at it, but, you know, I, I try. I peruse sometimes. Yeah. Um, so this is the drugstore killings, um, or other otherwise known as the Payless Drugstore Murders. Like, Payless the shoe store? No, this... So, back in the day, there was a chain of drugstores also called Payless. Okay. Um, I'm tracking. Fabulous. So this took place in February 4th of 1979. It was a busy Sunday at the Payless Drugstore in San, in San Mateo, California. Uh, it's just south of San Francisco, if you aren't familiar. Um, store had advertised their popular Dollar Days promotion, and there was a ton of money, a ton of sales that day. So I, I guess they did that every, every week. Um, <laughs> store closed at 7 p.m. The doors were locked, and the security guard made his rounds. Three employees stayed behind to empty the registers and before perform the closing tasks. Um, this gives me really mad flashbacks to when I worked at Target. Um, I was just having flashbacks to when I worked at Aerie. <laughs> <laughs> um, the most senior employee who was present was 24-year-old Michael Olson. He was not supposed to be uh, not supposed to be working that day, but agreed to cover somebody else's shift. He had been with the Payless chain since he was a teenager. He worked his way up from being a part-time box mailer to position as mer- merchandise manager at the San Mateo store. The promotion had come just four months before the the murders. What's a box baler? Uh, you take boxes and you put them in a baling machine, and it makes them like tight and compact, huh. kind of like hay. Okay. Like a hay baler, oh, same concept, but it's cardboard. Okay. We and then they get sent that. to like recycling uh, facilities. I could, okay. Thanks. It's a very dangerous, scary machine. Yeah. Mm-mm, not about it. Okay. Um. Da, 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 da. Uh, he was a really big outdoors guy. On his days off, him and his wife would go hiking. Um, he used to take do like sketches while they were on their hikes and like draw like drawings for their um like, like a cabin he wanted to build in the woods for them and uh their his one year old daughter Amy. Oh. Um, assisting Michael in closing that day was 16 year old Tracy Anderson, a junior at a local high school. Uh, he was an avid sailor who enjoyed guitar and running. He had started working at the Payless in December during the 1978 Christmas rush. He liked having the extra cash so much that he decided to stay on after the holidays. Um, he spent his money that he earned at the store taking his girlfriend out on dates and working on his car. 
Um, William Billy Bumgarner had also been hired for the same Christmas rush and was proud when he, the store had offered to keep him on in the new year, especially since they had entrusted him to help with the closing registers and depositing today's cash in the upstairs safe. A uh, 17-year-old had recently moved from with his family from Montana and was attending Hillsdale High with um, Michael. So they were like classmates, basically. Um, 7.32 p.m., the, cla- the last cash register was closed. Michael and Billy took the day's receipts up to the lock locked accounting office on the second floor. Tracy stayed downstairs. By 8 p.m. The, that evening, a small group was congregating in the Payless parking lot. They were members of the night crew who came in after, an hour, after hours to clean and restock the shelves. There was just one problem. The doors were locked and nobody inside was responding. Someone went to a nearby payphone and tried calling the store, but there was no answer. Uh, had Michael, Tracy, and Billy really left the store without without waiting for them to get in? Um, so they were pissed. Um, they ended up driving up to get a spare key from an one of the store managers and they returned to the store upon entering the workers discovered that the lights were still on and nothing seemed disturbed everything was quiet and then they went upstairs to the accounting office around 9 30 san mateo police were dispatched to a robbery in progress at the payless drug store on cochran drive the first officers to arrive were greeted by a small group of shocked and terrified employees upstairs in the accounting office lay their colleagues michael olson and billy bumgartner in a sea of blood both had been shot back of the head yikes yeah one half of the double safe was open rolls of pennies were all around the floor Downstairs of the stockroom floor, Tracy Anderson was on his back, moaning with an iron stake he had apparently picked up to try to defend himself. He'd also been shot in the back of the head. Shit. Uh, So he'd been shot, but he was alive. Yeah. Like, barely. And I guess he, like, did try to fight back. So... Wow. Yeah. Uh, Michael showed no signs of life, but when paramedics examined Billy, they detected a very faint faint heartbeat. Despite their best efforts, the resuscitation attempts failed. Billy was pronounced dead on the scene at 10.08 p.m. His death was confirmed at 10.16. Meanwhile, an officer rode in the ambulance with Tracy in hopes that he could help identify the killer, but the officer had no luck communicating with Tracy. At the hospital, he was declared brain dead, and he passed away at 11.42 with his family at his bedside. Um, The execution-style triple homicide of Michael Olson, Tracy Anderson, and Billy Bumgarner was quickly dubbed the Payless Murders. San Mateo police considered it the most heinous crime their city had ever witnessed. Uh, Little did they realize that the investigation would span almost 40 years and counting. Is it solved now? No. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, investigators immediately began working the crime scene. They noted that the store had been closed when the murders occurred, yet there was no signs of a forced entry. Uh, a closer examination, they found the alarm on a fire door in the rear building had been unplugged. Uh, police theorized that the gunman had been hiding in the store until closing and then slipped quietly out the fire exit after the murders. The accounting office had a door that was always locked and featured a peephole so occupants could monitor who was outside of it. The gunman had a key to let himself in that room, or either the gunman had a key to let himself in the room and snuck up behind Michael or Billy as they were entering and forced his way in with them, or Michael and Billy had recognized him through the peephole and opened the door to let him in. The gunman had also had excellent timing. There was a very narrow window between the day's receipts would be taken to the office and when the night shift would arrive. Yeah, so like 30 minutes, right? Yeah, so really like tight time frame. Yeah. Um, it seemed like the gunman knew the disabled fire alarm, the staff's closing routine, and possibly how to access the accounting office. Was this an inside job? The main motive for the murders appeared to be a robbery. One half of the safe was open and the entire day's profit was missing. Approximately $18,000 in cash, which in, that was in 70s money, but it's 70 grand in today's money. I like how you did that. (laughs) So we didn't have to Google. Yes. (laughs) Um, And there's about $12,000 in checks, which would be another, you know, 50 grand or so. That's a lot of money. Right. The money had already been placed in bank bags when it was stolen. These ba- bags had never been recovered, nor have the missing checks. 
One detail that has been argued about the um, inside job theory is that the closed portion of the safe, because it was a, a double safe, um, the closed portion still had 30 grand of cash in it. But maybe the they just day. didn't have enough time to like get both. Right, and that's kind of what I think too. I don't think that it was just like an like on purpose, you know. Yeah, or thing. like maybe like one one side was open or they opened one side already and didn't have enough time to get the other side open. Right, okay. and um, and a real insider would have known that there was money in that other half of the safe and would have known the security code was on the portion of the safe that was already opened. Oh my god! Which is honestly like super Rookie. dumb. Like this is like really. Honestly, like, poor planning on the store's part. Yeah, but they probably never figured they'd be robbed like that. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> um, so, if an insider had committed the robbery and was willing to kill for it, why would you leave... 30 on, grand. Like, twice about the amount of money that you took behind. Right. Um, the three murders also seem to argue for and against an insider. On one hand, some theorize that uh, Michael, Billy, and Tracy had been shot because they knew the gunman and could uh, could identify him to police. But if that was the case, why did they leave two of the victims alive still? Maybe um, you didn't realize. Like, you shoot someone in the head, you figure they're, like, done. Well, um, you know? Tracy was still, like, moaning when the, p- the police arrived. So he was yeah. still obviously alive. That's crazy. Because Billy, like, had, like, a faint pulse, but he was pretty much gone. So he yeah. probably he probably appeared more dead. Um, and there were still, like, 30 minutes in between when this happened and the police arriving. Yeah. So, I mean. Huh. Um, da, 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 da. Uh, Billy's signs of life could have been more, would have been more apparent, apparent to the gunman. According to the autopsy, Billy had survived after being shot in the head and went into convulsions. These convulsions explained the profuse dispersion of the blood inside the office. Like, it, like basically, like, it was like a fucking bloodbath in there. Yeah. Um, all three victims had been shot just once in the back of the head, execution style. The trajectory of the bullet um, that had killed Tracy suggested he was kneeling when he was killed. Uh, the precision of the shots potentially points to an experienced organized killer. Maybe. Huh. Uh, today with DNA evidence and other forensic technology, a crime scene like this would take days to process, but in 1979, the forensic options were limited, and the Payless scene was processed in five hours. Yikes. So, yeah, but, I mean, then, they really didn't. Well, yeah, and also it was like, oh, okay, we have a business, like, we need to, like, yeah. let's go. Um, and also it was a very popular store location. Um, multiple employees had already contaminated the scene when police arrived. Fingerprints wouldn't be much use. Um, so the police focused their, like, investigation on the ballistics evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on the gunshot wounds to all three victims, a spent bullet that police had recovered, it was determined that the crime was committed with either a thirty eight Special or a three fifty seven Magnum. There wasn't much to go on, but it was something. Police began questioning Payless employees. It wasn't long before they got their first and probably only big break in the case. The security guard who had been on duty that Sunday and said that right before closing, he noticed an employee standing in the stockroom. He thought it was strange, but that employee wasn't supposed to be working that day. Um, he also had knowledge that the same employee had purchased a 38 special prior to the incident. The employee's name was George ba- George Bandy. Two years before the murder, George Bandy had moved from moved from Oregon with his wife Rhonda and their two children. He was hoping for better job opportunities in the Bay Area. He got a job at the Payless as a security guard. However, the store reassigned him to be a stockroom employee. Meanwhile, things hadn't worked out with Rhonda. She had taken the kids back to Oregon. He was now living in a small apartment in Hayward, directly across the bridge from San Mateo on the east side of the San Francisco Bay. George admitted to police that he had been at the store that Sunday evening uh, and that he had lost a girl's phone number and thought it might be in the pocket of a coat he had left at work, which is why he was back. Uh, he claimed to have arrived 10 or 15 minutes before closing, and he had, in fact, greeted Tracy on the way in. George said that he had left as the store was closing. Um, he admitted that he did own a 38 Special as well as a rifle and agreed to bring in the 38 to the police to investigate. 
Um, from the beginning, his stories weren't adding up. A girl named Gloria, whose number he claimed he was looking for, didn't seem to exist, and AT&T records didn't corroborate his claim to have tried calling her later in the evening from a payphone um, after finding the number in his wallet. Worse, he called police to say that he could not bring in the 38 for inspection because he'd suddenly remembered it had gone to his wife in the divorce settlement. Police went to Oregon to question Rhonda and locate the gun, but she admitted that George had called her the day after the murders and asked her to lie about taking the gun to Oregon. The truth uh, was that she had never had the gun at all. Okay. Right. He then changed his story and claimed to have tossed the gun in the garbage after shooting a neighbor's dog. Ew. Literal asshole. Like, why, first of all, if he did do it, he's a piece of shit. If he yeah. didn't do it, why the fuck would you lie about that? Right. And seem like a fucking asshole. Uh, much like the Gloria story, this dog did not seem to exist. You would think a neighbor, like, if you shot your neighbor's dog, they'd have something to say about it. Yeah, you think there'd be some sort of, I don't know, proof yeah. that that happened? Um, he consented to a search of his apartment. Police discovered $500 in $20 bills, but not 18 grand or the checks. Nor the bank bags. They did discover a partially used box of ammunition that uh, could be used in either a 38 Special or a 357 Magnum. Tests could not conclusively link the ammunition to the bullets that were found at the crime scene. An FBI lab was only able to determine the bullets were consistent with each other, but an exact match of the metals or batch number was not possible. Given how common the 38 Special and that type of ammo was, uh, consistent with was not the hard evidence that police needed to, you know, nail him. Gotcha. Um... He was subjected to repeated intense questioning and failed three polygraphs. At one point during the interrogation, George broke down and curled into the fetal position, sobbing. But police could not get him to admit anything to do with the robbery or the murders. Without a confession or any evidence, police could not move forward with charges against their one and only suspect. George soon hired hired prominent local defense attorney James Robert Bob uh, Korshan and stopped uh, cooperating with detectives. Without a big break, the investigation seemed to be stalled. The unsolved status of the crime would remain a thorn in the San Mateo Police Department's side for decades to come. Following the murders, Payless drugstores offered a $25,000 reward and hired their own private investigator. Meanwhile, the police investigation had remained fully active, but there were very few leads. One promising tip came about six months after the murders from a Border Patrol agent in Arizona. He had stopped a car from re-entering the U.S. from Mexico on suspicion of drugs. No drugs were found in the search, but in the glove department, the agents discovered news clippings about the Payless murders. A police detective immediately flew down to Arizona. One of the car's occupants, Andy, had fled the area, but another man, Pete, was willing to speak. According to Pete, Andy was an ex-convict and a heroin addict who had joined a drug gang called La Familia while in California, while in a California prison. Um, this is likely a reference to either La Familia Cinco or Nuestra Familia. It's not confirmed which one, mm-hmm. um, but either way, bad news bears. Yeah. Um, at the time of the murders, Andy had found work as a janitor at the Payless store in San Mateo. After the murders, a newspaper had reported that Andy was hiding inside of the store when the crime had occurred. After that information was published, Andy said that he had received threatening phone calls uh, and was being followed. Terrified, he requested a transfer to a different Payless store location. He was denied, uh, he denied being in the store that night, and police were able to verify that Andy had worked as a janitor for Payless, but could not locate Andy or any evidence linking him to the crime. Was it possible something, the robbery had something to do with his drug connections? Maybe. A second drug-related lead came from a methadone clinic at San Francisco General Hospital. A witness overheard a patient claiming to be have been a part of the murders. Police requested a search warrant and seized files from the clinic, uh, but a judge ordered police to return everything immediately and destroy any information they had gained. To this day, whatever clues or leads they might have found in those clinic files cannot be divulged. 
uh, as someone who works in hospital administration, it's like HIPAA compliant bullshit, and honestly, it's kind of trash in this, situa- this yeah, situation. Yeah, but if they got a warrant for it. Yeah, I. Even getting a warrant for like medical records is like very like weird and dicey. Hmm. Um. Interesting. Yeah, it's very very difficult to be able to use it in court. Um. It's kind of stupid. It's very stupid. Because, I mean, it's personal, but, like, your DNA is personal, you know? Like, you get... So it's like shit you, in your house. Like, right, like, you get a warrant for it, then it's for a game. Yeah. In my opinion. Right. Humble but it's one of those, like, doctor-patient, like, confidentiality, whatever the fuck. I mean, it's, like, the same thing with, like, lawyer-client privilege. Yeah. Like, you can't... I mean, they can't use any of that stuff in court. I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's true. It's along the same lines. It's, like I said, it's kind of bullshit, but... Yeah. Uh, George Bandy had moved to San Diego, uh, but continued to retain that Bob Corshawn, uh, as his return, as his attorney and the San Mateo police department continued to keep tabs on him. At one point, Corshawn had, um, approached the San Mateo DA and requested immunity for George in exchange for information that would prove his innocence. The DA and the police department rejected the proposal. If George was innocent, why did he need immunity? This would prove to be his, uh, the police department's last opportunity for cooperation from George. By September 1980, the investigation was at a standstill. This is like two and a half years later. Wow. Um, police had not been able to gather further evidence against George Bandy or anybody else. They were convinced that George was the killer, but without a confession, their hands were tied. The San Mateo Police Department finally decided that their best bet was to go ahead and charge him with the murders. The fear of facing a death penalty trial might be enough to get George to talk in exchange for a plea. That month, George was arrested in Southern California. Despite pressuring George to come clean, the police struck out. George told them he wanted his lawyer. He was transported back to San Mateo and booked on three counts of first-degree homicide with special circumstances and one count of robbery. He was held on $1 million bail, which back then was a lot of fucking money. Yeah. I mean, shit, it's still a lot of money, but... But more than... Right. <laughs> I didn't do the conversion on that one, what it would be now, but it's neither here nor there. What is this, 1980? Uh, Yeah. Uh, a preliminary hearing was scheduled for February. It would be up to Assistant att- assistant adr- District Attorney Jesus Christ, Clifford Creton, to finally get justice for the victims and their grieving families. Did you get an answer? I'm working on it. Okay, great. Uh, by February 9th of 1981, more than two years since the Payless murders, George Bandy appeared in a San Mateo courtroom for his preliminary hearing on three, rounds of, three counts of first-degree homicide and uh, one charge of robbery. George, Judge Edward Pasilka presided over a closed courtroom. The prosecution had little evidence to present, no confession, no witnesses to the crime, no blood evidence, no, uh, none of the robbery funds, and no murder weapon. Worse, their explanation for everything, uh, the evidence regarding the bullets in his apartment was technical and confusing. And the coroner did not recall his statement during the autopsy that the victims had been wounded by a hot load, which seems to contradict a, ma- a match to the ammunition in George's apartment. What's a hot load? Um, I'm not, I'm looking that up. Also, one million... <laughs> Is is um, a little over three million in today's money. Uh, Sorry, I'm looking this up. Uh, it's how a hot load spits the bullet out faster under higher pressure because it has more power burning. Okay. Uh, it's just an unfortunate thing to call. I mean, it's just it's yeah, it's icky. I'm not into it. No. Anyways. Um, George's defense attorney, Bob Kirshen, had argued to the judge that besides the lack of evidence, there's elements of the crime that pointed against an inside job, namely the 30 grand left in the safe. 
Um, he also made a curious statement then. He said, at best, George Bandy was in some way an accessory after the fact to some crime, but not the robbery and the murders. What crime was he alluding to? What crime said George committed as an accessory? So, like, why the fuck would you say that? So that's why he wanted immunity. Right. So he knows. He basically he knows. He knows something. Yeah. He knows something that... They should have just given him immunity so they would be able to close it. Right. They but also, but then the they'd have a goddamn monster just rolling around. Yeah, but if he was just, like... If he if he wasn't the person who actually shot them in the back of the head, I feel like it's worth it to get that person. But what if he was? Yeah, but <laughs> I think immunity deals can't... They, like, put provisions, like, in, you know, like, we give you immunity unless, like, what you're saying is a lie or, like, right. whatever. I'm not then, 100% sure on, like, the legalities I mean, of that. I'm sure that they can do some legal bullshit with that. Anyways. Um, the judge made a swift ruling. Uh, he found there was not sufficient evidence against George Bandy for the pr- trial to proceed and ordered the charges to be dismissed. Bandy was immediately released. No one else has ever been charged for the Payless murders. Uh, today, the what was, was the Payless store on Cochrane Drive is now righted. The original detectives who worked the case are now retired or dead. Yeah. George Michael Olson's wife, Artis, has been re- since remarried. His daughter, Amy, is, rema- is married and has children of her own. Billy Bungartner and Tracy Anderson are frozen in time as teenagers. Their young lives cut short because they never had a chance to begin. Yeah, that's sad. George Bandy left the U.S. Police continue to monitor him. In 2003, San Mateo police renewed their efforts to solve this crime and put fresh eyes on the case. In 2007, family, family members of the victims joined with the San Mateo Police Department, making a public plea for information. The state governor's office has uh, contributed $50,000 to the reward fund, bringing the total to $75,000. In 2011, police announced they had a possible break in the case, but they're not disclosing what it is. Wow. Um, they say they're continuing to develop new information, but that's all they're going to tell us. That's a doozy. Is that fucking bananas? It's sad. Yeah, so on... I feel um, like those ones are always so sad. Yeah. And that's so brutal. Three people. And they're also yeah. young. No. Yeah. No remorse. Wow. On that note, it's uh, your turn to go. Ooh. Okay. On well, that on that big bummer. Yeah. Okay. So, mine this week is about Michelle Kirkhoven. It is an unsolved case still. So, um, we're talking about a small town, small town um, called Orville. It's near Chico, which is north of Sacramento. For those who aren't familiar, um, it's like two and a half hours north of Sacramento. Isn't that like where that like giant lake is? Isn't that like a giant lake in Orville? I think so. Great. Yep. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So um, this is uh, where 22-year-old Michelle Kirkhoven lived and worked, and she was raising her three-year-old daughter. Um, she was described as a lively, bubbly, funny woman who loved music and was a really good friend. Um, she was really tiny. She had blonde hair, brown eyes, and was under five foot tall. Um, she worked at a bar, so at, it was called the King's Club, and um, she was last seen around 3.30 in the morning leaving um, the club. And then by 7.30 that same morning, she was found strangled to death inside of her apartment. So we got like a four-hour window here. Um, There's currently a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction in this case. It really hasn't gone very far, and there's been like a lot of just kind of muddy, I guess. It's a muddy case. Um, Tell me more. Her uncle, um, he is really adamant that there's a witness, and the police are like, not listening and they're discounting this witness which they are for good reason um so there was a witness from colorado who came forward stating that the night michelle was murdered um they were at a party 
and everyone at this party was doing drugs and alcohol um and then the person there was a person there who murdered michelle they at the party and then moved her body back to the apartment with the help of some other people um but the police don't believe her statement because she's got a really um like a a history of really heavy drug use and she's changed her story multiple times which is like red flag never gets yeah so um they have pretty much discounted that um but her uncle michelle's uncle believes this woman and he said that her story has remained consistent since Mm -hmm. the crime occurred so he's basically saying like the police are lying about it which i don't think is likely because i'm sure they want to solve it too um so they have looked into her claims they didn't like completely just like you're right you're a drug addict we're not gonna listen to you they looked into it but there was nothing that really even points to michelle being at the party and like no one else said that they saw her there so and that'd be like super weird if like like only one person saw her and everyone else like uh, no she wasn't fucking there right i mean i feel like even if you're doing like drugs and you're really high you would remember you know yeah. like i guess i don't know I've, I've never really done drugs before so <laughs> but nerd <laughs> okay um so in 2017 um the town put up six new billboards urging people to come forward with information that they might have that's hella billboards yeah so and for a small town right um the billboards have generated some tips but the case is still open and the police say they're still actively pursuing the case and they have two or three people of interest which is like a like a step down from suspects i guess so (laughs) Not a whole lot of progress. Like, you're just, like, a little sus, but, like, not really. Yeah. So, um, I guess there is DNA available that is enough to eliminate suspects, but not to, like... Prove it was somebody. Yeah, so... what what year did this happen again? I'm so sorry. This was in... um, Hold on. Actually, I didn't say. Hmm. Um, 91. 91. Okay, so, I mean, DNA was, like, all right then. I think it was... I think towards the late, like, mid to late I guess it, 90s. Like, I'm going to give it a hard okay. I think that's, like, when the, like, mitochondrial testing was, like, starting to become available. Yeah. And, like, it was kind of like, oh, like, they're related, but yeah. we don't, like, really know. Yeah. So, they do have some, and it has been used to eliminate several, like, suspects from the case. The police have followed the investigation to states like Oregon and Texas, um, like, interviewing people mm-hmm. and... Um, in 2006, they thought that there was a possible DNA, like, it was possible that a DNA match could be made to someone who was already in prison. He was in prison on suspicion of murdering another one, basically the same way, like, strangling. Um, but there was nothing. Seems legit. Like, there was articles about it, and then there was nothing. So, you have to assume that they tested the DNA and, like, right. excluded him as a suspect. And that's all that there is about it. So, um damn yeah it's really sad because she had a little baby girl three-year-old you know do we know anything about the little girl now did she like go like live with her dad or something i don't or know maybe, I, I don't there know. was there's really not a lot like basically most articles talk about her uncle who seems to maybe have some problems of his own yikes uh, <laughs> so there's just not a lot of like great information about it so if you um you know are from the area have your family from the area you talk to him about it and see what they know. Yeah. So, that's all for me today. Fabulous. Yeah. In that case, we will check you next week. Make sure that you leave us a review and a rating. And yes, please. Tell your friends. All your friends. Every single one. Because the more people who listen to us, the more giveaways we're going to do. And who, who doesn't love free stuff? 
I mean, honestly, it, it it's pretty big. Yeah. yeah. For real. So yeah, All let right. us know what you think. And uh, we'll catch you next week. Okay, bye. Bye-bye.